0: That's amazing. All right, uh, we're going to go straight to scripture. We're going to pick up, um, actually, we're going to read some verses that we read last week, but didn't really get to touch on them. We're going to touch on them very briefly, but we're really going to spend the majority of our time today in Romans 7, verse 7 to 12. But we're going to read verse 1 all the way to 12. Uh, Let's begin. But now we are released from that law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege, the gift that it is to gather with your people under your lordship. And we ask that you would meet us, speak to us as we go to your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill this place, that you would glorify Jesus, help us to see him. And Father, we thank you for your incredible grace and love that meets us every single moment that we come to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. What if I told you of a scenario? Uh, I'm going to warn you, this scenario might trigger you. It might get some folks upset. Um, Some folks, you might be like, oh man, that sounds interesting, even though that also sounds incredibly unfair. Um... What if I told you that you would get a new job tomorrow and it would be a great job, increased pay, really great company um, in your field, Uh, you would love it. It's what you've dreamed for. But the coworker that you would be assigned to, the team, that they would never be held accountable to the same standards that you were. So what does that look like? That means you have to be on time but they can show up whenever they want to show up. You have to do the work, and you're going to be held accountable, but who knows? Maybe they feel like contributing. Maybe they don't. You get to have a timed lunch break. They have siesta if they choose to. Um, You get the point. Uh, Maybe that is still not hitting home. Or how many of you uh, worked really hard to get into... uh, uh, college, and it had like, you know, it, it, was, it was the type, type of school that really vetted their students. You had to have a certain SAT score, high grades. None of y'all? Uh, uh, have I been deceived in the congregation? I've, all of y'all, stop playing games, you know? Like, you all had some pressure uh, to do well and to get into a good school, etc. cetera. Um, imagine that school uh, that you worked really hard for to get into that you earned your way, imagine if there were other students that weren't held by the same standard. Now, doesn't that sound irritating? Doesn't that sound unfair, unjust? Like why, 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 that's not right. That's not how it should be. We should all be held to the same standard. If it's triggering you to feel like unfair, unjust, can I submit to you that it's positively unfair how we are welcomed into God's family. It's unfair. Why? Because you and I don't meet the standard. We don't. We, we don't, we don't meet the grade. We don't carry our own and yet we're welcomed in fully as if we did. We're treated as if we have obeyed fully, as if we've met the standard. And before you rush to say, wait, that's not only unfair, that feels unjust, here's how God has made that possible. The standard is met, just not by us. It was met on our behalf. Jesus met the grade. Jesus is carrying us in ways that we could never carry ourselves. The standard is met by him, and every time uh, you would seek to scrutinize yourself and judge you or someone else would point out, you're not fit, you don't belong, God the Father says, they belong. Look, they met the standard. Not them, but it was met on behalf of them. This is what Jesus has accomplished for us. He has met the standard for us. And and verse 1 to 6, it gives this picture, it gives this like, analogy of of a woman that's married to her husband, and as long as she's married, as long as he's alive, she's bound to the covenant that she made. But the moment he dies, she's free from that covenant. And why does Paul use this language? He's trying to get us to understand something that's profoundly happened in our benefit, and that is that when we died in union with Christ to the law, we died to the relationship that we used to have to the law. And that relationship was one where our obedience to God was the measurement by which we could determine if we were accepted or not. Now that relationship is over. We're no longer relating to God on the basis of obedience to his law. We now relate to God on the basis of grace. We're accepted because of what Jesus has done. And this is absolutely glorious, liberating news. Because you and I, every single moment of our relationship with God, we can rest confidently and say, I am fully accepted. I belong here. You could push your shoulders back with confidence. I belong here. I have a place at God's table. I'm not like hiding in or sneaking in. No, I belong here. I'm family. He's my father, I'm his child. And you can say that confidently, not because you don't say I belong here because I I obeyed enough to belong here. I was righteous enough to belong here. You can confidently say I belong to God. I'm married to him in this new relationship because of what he has done on our behalf. That's absolutely life-altering. It changes everything because of what Jesus has done. We're now married to God through grace. Now, here's something that's important. We are no longer relating to God on the basis of law, where our obedience doesn't determine our acceptance by God. That's changed. But we still have a relationship with God's law. God's law has not been done away with. We just no longer relate to God on the basis of how obedient we are to it or not. Why is that important? Because if we miss that truth, we will slide into a spiritual situation where we will be guilty of essentially something called antinomianism. It's this idea that we are anti-law, anti-God's God's commandments, and we live in such a way as if God's law doesn't exist. Let me give you an example. I remember this young believer. Um, he was young in faith, but he was older in life. Um, he came to faith when he was in his 40s, and why that was relevant, because he was part of a church where the vast majority of the folks were like, late teens, early twenties. So he was like the senior person in the church, but yet he was the most spiritually infantile. He just came to faith. And, and he, uh, he was just trying to understand what it meant to relate to God um, and to have this like relationship with God through Jesus. And anytime he would mess up, sin, do something that was clearly wrong uh, based on God's instruction, he would say, well, I'm under grace, you know, just, I'm under grace. And, and so it was just like, hey man, that, that's, that's not how Jesus calls us to live. It's like, you're right, but I'm under grace. And so like, after a while, it just got really like boring to see this grown man say, I'm under grace. I was like, yeah, it's not cute, you're a grown man. And so uh, I also own the fact that it's actually not accurate the way you're saying that. Being under grace is never a justification for saying, God's law says this, I do that, but I'm under grace. You actually don't understand grace if that's your posture. Obedience or disobedience doesn't disqualify us or qualify us, but we still are called to obey. The law still calls us to obey. By law, also, let's get specific, when it's being used here, it's in reference to the 10 Commandments. You know, those 10 Commandments have not gone away. Jesus dying for us and justifying us by faith did not make the Ten Commandments go away. In other words, you and I can't say, I'm under grace, but, you know, I lied on my taxes, you know. I'm under grace, um, and yeah, I just ran somebody over with my car. I'm under grace. Like, we can't take God's commandments, violate them, and say, I'm under grace because they're still relevant. The first commandment is that we'll have no other gods before him. And so you and I can't say, I'm living idolatrously. I'm putting something before God. I'm pushing him out of the center of my life, but I'm under grace. That's not how this is intended to be. Again, you're not judged by the law as worthy or unworthy, but we are called to obey the law regardless. It has not gone away. So now with that kind of quick summary of what essentially verses 1 to 6 is driving at, that we have this new relationship with God, a new relationship with the law of God, there's something deeper about the law that we have to understand that we're going to dive into. Look at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Why is Paul making this argument? Because he's saying, he's trying to be really clear. Yes, our relationship to God's law has changed. We're no longer judged or or deemed worthy or unworthy based on whether we obey God's law or not. But it's still relevant in our lives. And one of its primary goals or benefits to us is that the law reveals what sin is. That may sound simple, but actually it's very deep in that you and I are constantly trying to define right and wrong, and most of the time, we find ourselves defining right and wrong independently from God. We... we, we basically give our standards of right and wrong to God and say, here's the updated version of right and wrong. It'd be really great if you start using this. God has his standard that hasn't changed, but we essentially try to create a new standard of right and wrong. But what it's telling us is that you and I will never know right from wrong, you and I will never know what sin is, and by contrast, obedience or righteousness, apart from God's law. It's almost as if, imagine if the dictionary tells us the definitions of words, but we say despite what that says, today I'm going to say that blue means red. And we're just going to rock out with that, regardless of how confusing that may be. It's like, that's not a red light. That's a blue light. Let's keep driving. You know, like, it, if we define reality contrary to how God defines it, imagine how problematic that is. Imagine if God says, this is sin. But we say, no, this is how we define sin. Imagine how complicated that becomes and what a relational impasse takes place. Because guess what? God is not updating his definition of sin. He's not modernizing it. He's not getting caught up with the times. That's not going to happen. What needs to happen is we have to become conformed to his definition of sin. And that's what the law of God does. And this is why it's such a gift, because apart from the law, you and I are incapable of knowing right from wrong, determining what obedience and sin is apart from God's help through his law. So why do you and I need to have a healthy, consistent relationship with God's word is because apart from it, we will not be able to define reality accurately. We will live in a weird fantasy space that is not reality-based. The law defines sin for us. I remember when I was a young Christian, the first couple weeks into my Christianity, where I was horrified to learn that scripturally there's such a thing as a Christian sexual ethic. Up until that moment, no one had ever shared with me that there was such a thing. And so I lived the way everybody around me lived, basically that whatever passion we had, whatever desires we had, we were free to fulfill them in whatever way we wanted. And when I come to learn that actually God has a very different definition for us, that he says, your body belongs to me. Do you realize that your body doesn't belong to you? It belongs to Jesus. You say, man, that sounds aggressive, and I don't know how I feel about that. How else do we process the fact that he's king, that he's Lord of, of all, that he's our creator? To tell you something other than that would be a lie. It would be to, to, to appease some falsehood. That's not accurate. The accuracy is that your body doesn't belong to you. My body doesn't belong to me. Your time doesn't belong to you. It doesn't, my time doesn't belong to me. Your money doesn't belong to you. And my money doesn't belong to me. Jesus is Lord of all. I, I'm so moved by the powerful amens that I'm getting. Like it's just, yes, yes, thank you. Finally, someone saying it. This is the truth. He has claim to everything. learning that I had, here's the thing, I did not know. And once I found out, this is why I was terrified, because I realized everyone around me is living as if we are our own lords and our own kings, and we're determining right from wrong, independently from God. And it was like, I had this moment, and uh, this is going to sound extreme. I'm 14, didn't have a lot of complex theological language. The only thing I could say was, We're all going to hell. Everybody. We're all doomed. Everybody. Because, like, literally, I'm looking at every. We're all living like this under this lie. Why? Because we didn't know God's law. I didn't know God's law. And because I didn't know God's law, I didn't know what sin was. So, the first. Thing that we have to be clear, even though our relationship to God's law has changed, the ongoing relationship that we have with God's law, His His commandments, is that it continuously defines sin for us. And apart from God's law, we will not be able to define sin. But here's the other thing that God's law does, and this, I'm going to tell you up front, is not flattering this will not be, like, complimentary to us. It's going to present to us some real things about us that the most spiritually powerful thing that could happen is for us to own how God describes us in these verses. Because look at what it says. What then shall we say, verse 7, that the law is sin by no means, yet if, I, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin." For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Now it says it again. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. God's law not only reveals what sin is. Here's the other amazing benefit to us. God's law reveals the true state of our hearts. And this is what is really unflattering, but it's the most honest thing that we can come away with. What we're told is that the moment God's law is introduced to our hearts, immediately, viscerally, without even thinking, it's a reflex. What happens in our hearts is we respond and say, no, you say, wait a second, little old me? I would never do that. No, that's somebody else, Chris. Never, never. When I hear God's law, I say, yes, Lord, always, yes. I'm just always saying, whatever you will, wherever thou shalt lead. Like, like. What it tells us, this is what's happening inside of each of us. And it happens so quickly that we probably are not even aware of it. And we don't even like, second guess it. It's, it's so natural to us. God tells us, I want you to love that person. And despite our desire to want to love that person, our heart's immediate first default response is, no, I want to hate them. I don't want to forgive them. I want to keep talking badly about them. I want everybody to have the yuck feeling toward them that I have. So I'm going to spread the yuckiness, you know, just like, did you hear about this person? I don't even know that person. Well, let me tell you about that person. So if you ever meet them, you know what I know and and you treat them the way I think they should be treated. And I don't like our hearts. The first reaction to God's law is that. God says, I want you to be generous. And our first reaction is hoard, keep it to yourself. There's not enough. Don't you dare trust to give and open up your your life with your time, with your talent, with your treasure. Today you you saw, I don't know if you, I was moved, I was encouraged. Like, man, look at all these beautiful opportunities for community. And God's inviting us into community. And let's be honest, some of you with your grin, with your nice smile, you were like, nope. I'm too busy. I'm not doing that again. Oh, man. If only that group was on this day. I'm, oh, oh, man. Oh, shucks. No, be honest. Your heart said no. Said no to what God invites us. This is what happens every single time that God tries to speak to us. Our default is that we say no. I've seen this with my kids. It's the most fascinating thing. They have a room full of toys. And the moment I say, hey, that outlet, all the way over there, you're there, all the way over there, that's covered for your safety, don't go there. And then it's all they want. It's all they want. It's like like the room goes dim, they see nothing, it's like, outlet, you know, it's like, I want to touch it. You know, like, that's all they want. It's like, no, don't do that. Get out of my way. I want the outlet. Like, it it doesn't matter. No, come on. Let's watch Moana for the thousand times. Sing, sing. Forget about the outlet. I need the outlet. Like, the moment you say no, all of a sudden, that's all they want. I wish I could tell you that spiritually speaking, we're more mature than that, but we're not. Spiritually speaking, God tells us no, and immediately and consistently, we say I want the exact opposite. Can I tell you this is a bad confession, but this is true. My daughter, my firstborn, uh, years ago we discovered that she had a tree nut allergy. Prior to that, I baked a mean pecan pie. It was really, really good. (laughs) Fantastic. My first introduction to pecan pie was during college. There was this diner... Uh, around, the house, around the block from where I lived in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And, ooh, wow, props for Bay Ridge, okay. Um, and I used to go there, study late at night, and the waitress was really kind. She would give me, like, really unhealthy, insane amounts of refills for coffee. And so, like, I'd be wired, as long as I bought a slice of pecan pie. Um, and so, it just really enjoyed it. Kind of brings me some good memories, some comfort. Um, I remember one time I was in this like baking pecan pie mode. I was just, anytime I got, uh, for people like, you want a pie? You need a pie. I'm gonna get you a pie, I'm gonna make you a pie. And so I'm making them for my church and all of stuff. And I, I got a little, you know, too uh, lifted up. I went to the, the grocery store and I said, do you have pecans? And um, the grocery store guy said, pecan. I was like, all right, I'll stay in my lane. And so anyway, um, the moment I was told that tree nuts weren't allowed in the house. That is all I wanted. If we would go to a diner or go out to eat, it didn't matter what was on the menu. Oh, that's an interesting steak. Lobster. Oh, pecan pie. And my wife is real, like, intense. She's like, no, don't have it. What if some crumbs stay on? And then, like, you give your daughter a hug and she might have a reaction. These are all legitimate things. And you know what I heard? I was like, no, I'll shower. I'll decontaminate, whatever. Let me have it. I need it. The moment I was told I couldn't have it. Spiritually speaking, what's your experience of God telling you to do something or God telling you not to do it, and you watch as your heart says, no, I want the complete opposite. That's the unflattering description that scripture is giving us. This is who we are. Our heart is always responding that way. Whatever God says, our default response is no. No. But hear what it's saying. It it, it isn't just like an intellectual no. It isn't like you told me to love. No, intellectually I'm saying no. It goes way deeper. Look at verse 5. It says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Look at what it says in verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. This goes deeper than just like an intellectual disagreement with God and and says, you told me to love, I'm going to say I'm going to hate. No, it goes deeper. Our very own desires rise up in defiance against what God is calling us to do. Why is this important for us to be honest about this? Here's why. Two reasons. Our culture, the time we live in, tells us a very bad lie. It tells us that you and I, that we're capable of approaching God's word from a completely unbiased place. That we could actually go to God's word with complete objectivity. But what this is telling us is that's impossible because the moment God's word is presented, our objectivity goes out of the door because immediately we say no. Every single handling of God's word by us needs to be factored in that our hearts are actively saying no. God is saying A, our hearts are constantly saying nah, B. This is is every single time. This is all of us. So there is no neutrality. There's no objectivity. Spiritually speaking, this is our default starting place. We start, our starting place in relation to God's commandments is to resist. To defy. But here's another thing why this is important. We live in a time that our culture has elevated human desire to the place of king in that if you have a desire, if I have a desire, no one is allowed to say maybe that desire it might not be good. Maybe you should second-guess that. Have you thought about that? First off, have you considered that that desire actually goes against what God says is good for us? We definitely don't want to talk about that. Because again, desire is king. And anything that tries to constrain our desires is viewed as vile, as awful, as something that we have to get away. Like, it's a crazy time that we live in. Every single individual human being is encouraged to define reality on their own, even if their definition is completely bonkers. And we, as a society, have agreed tacitly and overtly that we are going to co-contribute to this insane fantasy. Even if God says, no, this is reality, and we're saying, no, this is reality, we're encouraged to keep going down this rabbit trail of insane spiraling fantasy that has no truth to it. I have a friend that he journeyed with his wife through her, uh, she really struggled badly with bulimia. And if you've ever known anyone who's dealt with that awful, awful, like sickness in their soul, it's a terrible thing to witness. This woman, he showed me pictures. She was so thin, and yet the pain that she lived with was that when she looked at herself in the mirror, she said, oh, I'm so fat, I can't eat. And if I eat something, I have to purge because it's it, so you realize like she's looking at reality in a very warped, twisted way. And he shared with me is like because he was he was like using that to explain like our culture, he says, our culture would, would have told me I should have continued to play along with her false reality. Our culture would, would have told me essentially to say, if this is how she's defining reality, then go along with it and say, oh no, yeah, you're right. You, you shouldn't eat anymore. You're, you're done. Yeah, you know what, you should go to the gym now. Diet, extremely diet. It's okay to purge, you are right. It was like, it would have been the most cruel thing in the world to co-sign that false reality. God in his mercy, through his law, does not co-sign the false reality that we paint for ourselves. He actually lovingly tells us, hey, this is sin. You know the most loving thing that God does for us is give us his word and allow us to realize through his word what sin is and what it's not. This is God's grace to us, not allowing us to create these false realities that don't factor in his law. Why is this important for us to process? The goal is not for you to deny your desires or act like they're not there. Sometimes as Christians, we've done that falsely. We think that's the way that we are sanctified, by denying the desires that we have and acting like they're not there. No, this actually does the opposite. Be honest about your desires, but be honest about how those desires are formed. It says our desires are often formed in defiance to God's word. In other words, just because you have a desire doesn't mean you should run with it. You should first stop and say, where did this desire come from? And what we're told is many of our desires, the moment they formed in us was the moment we found out that God wanted us to do another thing. Right now, some of us have desires in our life that if unchecked, could really warp our lives badly. What God's word gives us an opportunity is to essentially question our desires in a healthy way and say, I feel this, I want this, but I also know that I often feel and want things just because God wanted something else for me that our desires are often the birthplace of many of our desires is the fact that God commanded us otherwise. You realize that? Say, but I feel this. I really want this. But do you know that you probably really feel that and really want that because God told you that wanting other, other things would be better for you? That rebellion to God. Resistance to God is right there producing all sorts. You notice that it said it produced all sorts of covetousness, all kinds, not just one kind, all sorts. The moment we heard, You shall not covet, sin seized the opportunity and said, I'm gonna produce all sorts of covetousness in your heart. And so, how crazy would it be to look at covetousness in our heart and say, Because I feel it, I'm just going to run with it. I'm going to live unquestioned. I'm I'm never going to check this desire. I'm never going to bring this desire to God and say, maybe this desire is formed through deception. Uh, Maybe this desire is part of my brokenness, not that I should run with it just because I feel it. You know how liberating it would be for you and I To no longer be slaves of our desires, but to actually be led and driven by the Spirit of God. That's what Jesus has intended to be our new norm. As we close, God has this new relationship for us. A new relationship with his law. And this is how it looks. The law of God will continue to instruct and guide us. But thanks be to Jesus, we're no longer judged to be worthy of God's love based on our obedience or disobedience to God's law. God's law will continue to reveal his character, but it no longer determines the basis of our relationship with God. If you obey or you disobey, that is no longer the basis of your acceptance. The basis of your acceptance is that Jesus has obeyed on your behalf you're accepted because of what he has done. The law, rightly understood, it should usher us into greater honesty before God. Today, I pray and hope that for all of us, we would come to a place and say, this desire that I've held, that I've cherished, that I've held in an unquestioned manner, now is my opportunity to be honest and say, perhaps this desire was birthed in defiance to God's law. So maybe I should question this desire. Or today might be the day you say, actually, I'm going to be honest about this reflex, visceral response that the moment God tells me to do something, my heart's immediate default reaction is to say no. No. And that when we're honest about that, you know what that sets us up? That sets us up for the salvation that Jesus uniquely brings to us. Because guess what? He is the only one that breaks that cycle in your heart and mind. We will stay in that loop infinitely. God says to do this, we will say no. God says to do this, we will say no. And let's just say hypothetically, God says to do something and we say yes, and we try to obey in our own strength, we won't be able to. Jesus breaks that cycle, and now he makes it possible that when God tells us to do X, we say through his grace and empowerment, yes. Jesus does that. And lastly, understanding who we are in light of God's law, it should make us run toward community even more. Because it should make it very clear that if this is the state of our hearts, our default, apart from Jesus intervening, that we're going to need each other to encourage each other, to support each other, to remind each other, to pull each other back, to pull each other forward whenever sin tries to deceive us again and again and again. Let's pray for a moment. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. But before we do anything, let's just pray. Just really sense the Holy Spirit is trying to knock on our hearts. Would you right there where you're at as we prepare to close? Just take a moment. And ask the Holy Spirit to knock on your heart right now. To speak to your heart. And ask his help that you might hear what he's saying. Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you help us to see what we can't see on our own. Would you help us to see the ways that we actively buck against, resist the commands of God? Help us to be honest about our default reaction whenever you speak to us, that left to ourselves Our response to your commandment will always be no. Our desires get bent up in the process. So, Lord, would you save us as only you can. But to save us, we have to be honest about it. Just take a moment and be honest with the Lord. Say, God, this is my heart. I'm agreeing with your description of my heart. My desires are often formed in defiance to your word. So I bring my desires to you. I say, I don't want my desires to be my king. I want you to be my king. Jesus. With that posture... Could I invite us to stand? And in these next few moments, as we respond to God in prayer, in worship, I want to encourage you, the prayer team is in the back. And so at any given moment, you could slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer for anything you need prayer. The words that were shared earlier, anything the message might have stirred, or just anything you need prayer, they would love to pray with you. At this time, could I invite us if you feel comfortable doing so, could could we raise our hands in the presence of God? Physical posture says, God, I'm turning to you. You have my attention. I want to bring my affections to you. God, meet me. My hands open. I hold nothing back. I come to receive. Meet me now. Speak to me. Let's worship him. Let's seek him.